John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's good to have you back, Todd. I was running solo with John, and that was a scary, scary thing. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, we're both in the cockpit, but nobody's in control. So uh, we're glad to have you back. I'm Uh, glad to be back. Oh, good. Well, I think we have a pretty interesting accident we're going to talk about uh, down in the islands, if you will. It's a Britain Norman Islander uh, twin-engine piston airplane, and um, it's one of those island hoppers down there, and uh, this was a training accident, except it was not the normal training accident where you have a very young pilot or an inexperienced pilot, if you will, from the standpoint of flight time, but it is a training accident with a very seasoned pilot who came off of a airline career flying a Boeing 737, but had zero (laughs) flight time in this particular airplane and general aviation uh, to an extent. And now they're trying to fly into a special use airport in, uh, in Calibra, Puerto Rico. And um, Todd, I think, uh, you know, in looking at the history of flight, why don't you just give uh, the viewers, listeners, a little summary of uh, of this history of flight, because it is interesting. Well, uh, the history of this flight is going to be fairly short because uh, it was the first time event for all around. It was the first time this uh, uh, training pilot had been in this kind of aircraft. The first time they had uh, flown with the instructor the first time he had ever seen the airport where they're coming into. Now, normally this is not a big deal because, hey, if you have four flight, you look up four flight, what are the procedures? What's the map of this airport? Let me get some sort of mental picture of what it is. I did that before the show. I came up with nothing. It said, there are no procedures for this airport. There is no map for this airport. You look in four flight, there was nothing. This is an island that's half in Puerto Rico, but it's a small island off the east coast of Puerto Rico, roughly halfway between the east coast of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Uh, There's no tower here. There's no uh, uh, weather at that airport. The closest weather was in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. And so this is something where if you're a first timer, it's going to be kind of nerve wracking. 
And it's also nerve wracking because I thought, well, this operator must have some sort of training program for their pilots. They do. And in fact, we'll have the training manual attached to uh, the show that you can go to the page and look at. Grand total of seven pages of which maybe, I don't know, five and three quarters really wasn't useful. And what was there was not much. And it seems to me from reading both the uh, public docket and the accident report itself is that the operator had procedures for this airport, but it wasn't something that there was a, they were extensively trained, training their people on. In fact, the training manual said the training for new pilots was about four hours long. And uh, this isn't four hours in the aircraft, isn't four hours in simulators, it's four hours total. And according to other information from this report, the accident pilot, the, the training pilot, said, yeah, he looked at some videos as part of his training. Now, I can only imagine just how extensive this training was. Well, let's take it out. Let's give it to the expert. You know, Greg, you are an instructor. You instruct people all the time. What are the challenges with, with training or instructing a 64-year-old pilot who has spent his career much larger aircraft flying into much longer runways on much bigger airports. By the way, this runway is 2,600 feet long, 60 feet wide, just so you know. It's the same challenge that we have, you and I have with John. You can't teach an old dog. <laughs> no, when you, when you look at this, one of the questions is, okay, you got a 64-year-old guy who's got 16,000-plus hours um, all all of it is heavy time. He was flying a Boeing 737 into those long runways like you were talking about. His sight picture is different. Feeling of the aircraft is different. Handling, handling qualities of the airplane is different. He's going to be flying this airplane, presumably single pilot, since it is just a twin engine piston airplane. He's just getting his, uh, his checkout, if you will, in the airplane. He's now flying into what is considered by the company a special use airport. Um, it is a short runway. It is a very narrow runway. And like you were talking about, Todd, there is a specific procedure that you have to fly as a VFR pilot coming in there since there are no instrument approaches and that kind of thing. Um, and, and the company requires stabilized approach criteria but there seemed to be a question about whether or not this flight or this airplane was actually stabilized on the approach. Um, there's varying uh, discussions about the wind conditions, um, whether it was just blowing at nine knots and it was benign and not a factor, or if it was blowing at 15 to 16 knots with gusts up to 30 knots that were 30 to 40 degrees off the nose, which would have definitely made this a very challenging approach and landing attempt by a pilot who, while having 16,000 plus hours, is a novice. He didn't even have one hour in this airplane. This was his first landing, flying this airplane, and they're going into a special use airport. And what I don't understand is, why in the heck did the flight instructor pick this airport for this pilot to have his first landing, first approach and landing? in the airplane when he has no prior experience other than a little bit of ground school. And if it's, you look at the uh, photos that we'll have as part of this video, you see that the approach uh, side, the approach end of the runway, they had to pass over some high terrain and hills and whatnot. So you have this to contend with as well as a crosswind and the kind of 
turbulence, even if it's mild turbulence or a few bumps here and there, as you're coming in for a landing. And another thing that jumped out at me, it was written in one of the uh, public docket information that, oh, yes, uh, as they were crossing over what they call Flamenco Beach, the trainee trainee pilot was given instructions on crossing, uh, giving control back over to the training pilot. Well, we looked at the map, looked at where this beach was, looked at what the airspeed was, and apparently the trainee pilot was given this instruction on handing over control less than a minute before touchdown, when things might have been getting a little bit hairy for him. Yeah, I mean, you're in a high workload environment. It may not sound like it, but again, you have a training or an instructor pilot sitting in the right seat. You're flying from the left seat. You haven't flown this airplane before, and now you're going into a challenging environment, a challenging runway, and you're having to fight whatever wind condition is out there. You're trying to keep the airplane stabilized. John, one of the things that I saw in the report, though, is that the words that were chosen by the flight instructor were very carefully portrayed to the NTSB. He, he, they, even though he claimed that the, the approach was stabilized, he said it was at the high side of the approach speed, about 80 knots, and it was 100 feet above the glide slope. That doesn't sound stabilized. I mean, you have to be on your approach speed, you know, and on your glide path. And it doesn't really talk about what they were using for a glide path other than probably uh, the end of the runway, which is their target touchdown uh, zone. Now, a very, very quick uh, piece of physics here. If you are higher than normal, that means you have more potential energy. If you're faster than normal, you have more kinetic energy. Both these kinds of energies have to be dissipated before touchdown. So again, uh, you're high and hot which means things are going to come at you faster than normal, and you have to slow the airplane down by whatever means necessary before you have a nice touchdown. Thank you, Mr. Physics. Really appreciate that science <laughs> lesson. And also, you know, this airport is, is elevated. The end that they were landing on looks to be substantially higher than the, than the opposite end. So that may also affect his, his judgment on... Uh, well, and, and and we know John and and Todd and you're you're back flying. I'm flying, and the, it, it's all about the sight picture. You're not sitting, you know, twenty feet up in a seven thirty seven. You're almost at ground level in that that uh, Britain Norman Islander. So your sight picture is different. So uh, you know, given the fact that everybody on the airplane said it wasn't a hard landing, it was a hard landing. They pounded that airplane in. And it was a flat touchdown. He actually touched down with all three landing gear at the same time. You don't do that in that kind of airplane. And so, and like you were talking about, you're going to get into a high descent rate. Well, if his sight picture is bad and he flares late, you're going you're gonna to hit the ground pretty hard, even though they said it wasn't a hard landing. Well, it was hard enough to break the wing spar. I don't know what else you can can call it other than a hard let it was more than firm because you broke the wing spar on the airplane so and the airplane then once it touched down it immediately went to the right now they're trying to blame the free castering nose gear being cocked 90 degrees to the right well the question is how did it get cocked 90 degrees to the right because if it's free castering it should have at least been almost lined up 
in the slipstream um, pretty much straight. So that's another issue that the board didn't talk about uh, from a mechanical standpoint, other than in the docket, Todd, um, looking at some of the statements and that kind of stuff. And I think there is a, even a brief statement in the NTSB factual that there were no mechanical anomalies with the airplane, uh, you know, prior to the airplane zinging off the right side of the runway. You know, just stop and think about all the things that this guy had against him that the flight instructor should not, you know, that all indicate that the flight instructor was not doing his job. You got an airport that's nestled in the, in between a couple of big hills with a great big funnel down the, not down the runway, but a quartering, 40 degrees off roughly. Right, so you're going to have automatically a crosswind no matter what you do. Because we know down there it's always breezy. That's slow. That's why people go to those islands in the in the uh, in the summer. Yeah, because of all the trade winds. So you got the wind issue. You got no standard procedures. Uh, you got an airplane that's unfamiliar to a captain that's got a lot of time in a different kinds of airplanes under a different set of circumstances. Where the hell was this flight instructor? <laughs> exactly, and. And he has the responsibility. The board said it was the flight crew who failed to uh, stabilize the approach and be on speed and everything else. No, it wasn't. It wasn't the flight crew. It was the training pilot. He's got to be monitoring. And when things started to get out of control in the last few seconds of that flight, especially with the high, it, it's obvious they had to have a high descent rate in order for them to pound it into the runway as hard as they did. And so why wasn't, well, we don't have a cockpit voice recorder. We don't know what was being said. But why didn't he take the airplane, even if it was at the last minute? You take the airplane, you power up, you pull up, and you get the hell out of there and either come back and do it again or you go somewhere else. This was a training flight. And, I mean, there was no requirement to land this airplane. And if things got out of control, you don't try to salvage a bad situation. And that's why the instructor pilot is the responsible one. Um, and, and he even briefed it. And that is, if you need to give up control, give up control. Okay, great. But you can also take control too, my airplane. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it really focuses on, on the instructor pilot. Why he chose a challenging uh, airport like this for this guy's first flight, first landing. Um, why he's using a special special use airport. And I think, Todd, you mentioned in the training manual, there's a note that says you're not flying in here <laughs> unless you've got prior experience or at least prior training experience. Yeah, I think that said something effective. You can't do this until you've completed all the training requirements. And uh, again, I'll have to read it again, but I don't believe uh, this uh, trainee, trainee pilot had done all that. And certainly, yeah. again, this is, a, take away all the technical stuff, take away the training manuals. First time doing something, do you want to do it in a challenging environment or a benign environment? Yeah, this I mean, is challenging. That's, yeah, I mean, that's like taking, you know, a green airline pilot, a brand new guy who just is getting used to an Airbus or a, a 737 or whatever and saying, okay, we're going to go fly the river approach into Washington National. <laughs> Hold my beer, watch this. <laughs> I mean, that's a special use airport. It takes um, not only experience in the aircraft, but of course it takes experience in, in special uh, airport training 
to fly that particular approach. And this is the same way. I don't care if it's a smaller airplane. You got a guy who's never been in a, into an environment. And oh, by the way, he hasn't been in a GA airplane in decades. And um, and so you're now throwing him right into the fire going, ah, he's an airline pilot. He can handle it. Well, apparently he couldn't. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, I, I just think that this was one of those accidents. They busted up a good airplane. They broke that spar. Now, Todd, I see. I think you said that uh, you looked it up in the registry. It's obvious they fixed it because apparently it's flying again. And the, the fortunate thing is that no one got seriously injured and there is lessons to be taken away from this. I can only imagine if uh, this was not a survival thing, would we have had anything? There wasn't a CBR. There wasn't a, uh, you know, a flight data recorder. So, uh, and apparently there was no eyewitness statements from anything that, that we saw in the reports. And this was and a small no ADSB data. No ADSB data that we could look no at. No ADSB. I was looking for past flights of this airplane. I looked in my favorite places. I found nothing. Nothing in flight aware. Nothing in flight radar twenty four. And I couldn't figure out if anything was on ADSB exchange. And that's my usual go to. It's like, hey, if nothing else, just about every airplane has ADSB. Or perhaps there are no ADSB receivers in this airport where it was flying. I don't know, but we have very little to go on. Yep. And I, th I just think that, you know, these are the kinds of accidents where, you know, it's real easy to just, okay, blame the pilot. But this report was incomplete because it really didn't get into the good stuff to tell me why the instructor decided that that was going to be the first airport they went into. They said that he did it. Okay, great. He admitted he did it. Um, even if it was contrary to company policy and procedure, but they never asked him, well, why'd you choose that airport? You know, and where was the oversight? Not only by the company, but where was the oversight by the FAA? They do not talk about any of that in this report. And that should have been at least questions to management going, did you condone this? Did you know this was happening before this accident? And I'll bet you dollars to donuts it was. And then of course, where was the FAA? in uh in overseeing their training program because it is a 135 operator and uh and so what what did the faa know or or not know was taking place in in the training and none of that's really talked about and that's the good stuff for our audience to learn from because if we have these questions that hey maybe we can benefit from it they can definitely benefit from it yeah it's unfortunate that there's so much missing. Well, it's one of those kind of slam dunk reports. Let's just get it done and get it off the desk. It was a limited investigation. And anytime you have a limited investigation by the NTSB, there isn't a lot of effort or thought put into it. They go to the obvious facts, um, some of which aren't necessarily facts um, or vetted facts. And then they come up with a very simplistic probable cause. Well, the flight crew failed to do this. Okay, great. That's kind of obvious. But tell us why. I mean, that's the good stuff. That's our learning moment. So um, I know, Todd, you'll put up a lot of this stuff out of the docket so that uh, our listeners and viewers can uh, can look at all of this. Um, but there are lessons to be learned if you read between the lines um, and you really understand what was going on. Um, there are some lessons here to be learned. So with that, I will leave you, Todd, with the second to the last word, because I have to leave the patriarch with the last word. 
Well, uh, given that, uh, don't want to reveal too much, but the age of this uh, trainee pilot was roughly my age. So I, I can easily imagine myself doing something for the first time in an airplane because I've been doing it several times the last few months. And, uh, you know, it will be nerve wracking. I don't care how much experience you have, how much experience you think you have, how much you think you know. You're in a new situation, a whole lot of stuff coming at you. Don't hesitate to say, hey, I can't do this. Please take over. Because, uh, you know, the downside of not doing that is you end up on a show like this and we'll talk about you like you had a tail. <laughs> Very good. I like that. I like that a lot, Todd. So try to beat that, John, with our last words. I don't want to beat anything, except I want to have our people that listen to this show not have accidents. And the way to do that is to do a good session of pre-planning before you leave the house to the airport or your hotel, whatever it is. And then after you get to the airport, do it again. Make sure you get all the weather, you know, where you are, where you're going, and everything in between. When you go out to your airplane to do a pre-flight, do a good one. Touch your airplane if you can. Wiggle the flight controls. Right? Some airplanes, uh, you know, especially corporate, you almost have to crawl under them. And I never see corporate pilots doing that to check the, the tires and brakes and for a leak, unless it's a big puddle. But in any event, do a good pre-flight. When you get in the airplane, make sure you run the complete checklist. And when you get in the air, put that head on a swivel, especially today. We've got thousands and thousands of new pilots out there. And, you know, they're going to make mistakes. We all did. And let them let it be their mistake. Don't don't you get involved with their accident. Have your own accident, but don't get involved with theirs. And, and if you follow those procedures, you won't have an accident. So at the end of the day, please, please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.